This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. In the year we listed, we had a, an EBITDA of minus 2.4 million. So we were burning cash. And last year we had a, an EBITDA of plus 2.5 million. So we basically turned the business around. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Jan Evero, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. You're the CEO at A Small World, the world's leading travel and lifestyle community. Before we talk about your business, I actually want to focus on your studies. You did your studies in business administration, both here in Switzerland at the University of St. Gallen, but then also did an exchange in Singapore. What led you to the decision to study abroad in Singapore? Yeah, that's right. I studied in St. Gallen. I was uh, part of the um, strategy and international um, management uh, class in my master's. And uh, they offered this uh, dual degree with uh, the Nanyang uh, business school in the western part of Singapore, just outside in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, it, it just seemed like a really cool thing to do, right? So you, instead of doing one and a half years, you'd spend one year in Switzerland, one year in Singapore. And uh, it was at the end of my studies. And um, I felt, well, why not like take some time off from the work I did on the side and uh, do something cool and spend the year in Singapore. What did you take away from that year? How did it shape you or change you? It, it actually had a more profound sort of effect on me than, than I would have thought before I went because it was really the first time where I lived abroad. So I, mm -hmm. until that point, I lived in Zurich and in St. Gallen for a bit. Right. But um, I, I, I've been traveling, of course, I went on vacation to other um, locations. But it was really the first time when, when I spent a longer period of time somewhere else and I was... Um, part of a um, university class, I had to make new friends, I had to make international friends. Um, the the studies were completely in English, although they were in St. Gallen as well, but it felt kind of like, a, I don't know, it didn't feel <laughs> full on, right? right. To, to use that I feel you. term. Yeah. So it, it's, it's um, and, and, and uh, to be immersed in a, in, in a very different culture, in a melting pot of cultures that, that Singapore is, and, and uh, you know, just going to the shops and the, the products look different. And, and you know, it, it, it was just, it shaped me in a bit where um, I started to question the way we do things in Switzerland for certain things. So it was the first time I was like, okay, well, maybe there's another way to do things. And nice. I think that that sort of realization that there is not just one way to mm -hmm. do it right is actually, it, it really changes your whole outlook. You, like you, you question the way you do your own things, the question like society does things. And, and um, it's, so it had a really profound effect to like answer your question. Yeah, it, it, it's easy, right? To forget to question the status quo in our own bubble here in Switzerland, if that's your only... Yes, I mean, Switzerland is a bubble, but, but I feel like it, no matter where you're from, right? Mm -hmm. I, I feel the first time you really immerse yourself in another culture, you see how things can get done differently, whether you're from Switzerland or you're from Italy or whichever uh, country. It, it just shapes um, your your way of thinking, this is the right way to do it and, and to, oh, there are different ways to do that and you can do it yeah. differently. And, and once you have that realization, I mean, for me, it felt very freeing in a way and like it opened up a lot more possibilities. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I, since then, I think I've been a lot less certain about it has to be a certain way and a lot more open to like different ways and and yeah i i kept that with me until today great and then the openness is also something that you then saw when you finished your studies right so i was wondering what were your professional aspirations and goals after you've finished your studies yeah it's it's funny um i i actually had my job locked in before i went to singapore okay. um it was um because I knew that I wanted to go into management consulting was was just something I wanted to do. 
And um, also I had a girlfriend in Switzerland at the time and she was like, well, you're going to Singapore, are you ever going to come back or not? Mm -hmm. And so I really felt that why not do the interviews before I leave? And so I interviewed with um, with um, actually two management consultancies, um, uh, Bain and, and Monitor at the time, uh, mm -hmm. no longer around. Um, and I got the job uh, with Bain and so I signed and I had that cozy uh, situation where the last year of studies for me was just a bit to relax and like enjoy it while I already knew that I had a job for, for when I come back to, to Switzerland. But then the funny thing is, and, and when you say like, how did it shape, shape me that stay in Singapore? Um, when I came back to Switzerland, I really felt I didn't want to be here. So that, oh. um, not in the sense that I didn't like it, but, mm -hmm. but because, because of the experience I had in Singapore and like the effect it had on me, I really felt that it's now time to go and explore other places. I and mean, now is the time to do it. And I remember um, having a conversation, I think, into my second week at Bain in Switzerland saying like, I made a mistake. I should actually not be here. I want to be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me like, what's going on with this guy? Yeah, of course. Um, but um, what was really cool, and, and, and that's why one thing leads to another, they said, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a few weeks later, they actually uh, came up with an opportunity for me to transfer to Bain's New York office, where I actually spent... Um, a bit more than like nine months uh, as, a, as a as a transfer, and so one thing led to another in that sense. So so Singapore really opened up the world to me, and and wanting to live in other places and experience other cultures. Yeah, that would have been a tough moment, right? You wanting to explore the world, but then being forced to stay in Switzerland, not being able to do so. Yeah, it's so funny because I I really wanted that job, and and yeah. and so. <laughs> I came back and I, I was so ungrateful almost for having it. And, and I felt, I looked at my, I looked in the mirror and said, well, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. But that feeling of um, wanting to go and explore was so strong. And, and uh, luckily it turned out well. I mean, I stayed for another 10 years to, like, to go fast forward. So, so exactly. it, it worked out, but actually with more uh, stages abroad. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, in, in that sense, the Singapore experience really opened up the world for me and that desire to travel and experience other cultures. And you mentioned the 10 years. So also, of course, you want to know how did that help you to then become an entrepreneur yourself? Because management consulting, you see a lot of different companies, organizations and challenges. Did that help you and shape you to become an entrepreneur yourself later down the road? Yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, there's this in the sense that Bain or any management consultancy or any of the big ones, what they do, what they teach you, a really sound general manager toolkit. Um, so, I mean, I've been working with um, industrial goods companies, financial services companies. I've been working in private equity during my time in South Africa. I've been working with gold mines and platinum mines. And, and so really a broad uh, spectrum of industries um, um, and what what that did and also um, capabilities. You do cost cutting, you do organizational work. You, um, I mean, at some point we, we in, for the mines, we were doing shift schedules to, to be most productive and then use the asset. So you really do a broad, a lot of different kind of work. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, it's like a, an apprenticeship of a very high level, right? Yeah. So, so because you learn from the senior guys, you learn from the companies you work with. So in that sense, it prepares you for, it, it creates your management toolkit that you need to run a company. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, what, what it, it doesn't necessarily do is it doesn't really prepare you for um, the stress and, and so the, 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 the context of a small startup. Because you, in management consulting, because it's an expensive service, you usually only work with very big companies. Mm -hmm. So you're used to like the, the UBSs, the Novartises of the world, really big companies and political companies and, and, and specialized companies. And the startup game is very different. You do, you do a lot of different things with very few people. Right. And so that's, that's a very different world. So in that sense, it prepares you because you, you, you learn skills, mm -hmm. but it prepares you for a large company setup and not for a small company setup. I'd say that's the only thing that it doesn't do. Right. And where did then your entrepreneurial drive come from? Was that always in you or do you have any role models in your family that then let your path towards entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's 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 funny because I'm not a I'm not an entrepreneur as such, and I I, I still wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur because I've never found uh, founded my um, own company. Mm -hmm. um, with with a small world, 
I joined a company that was already there um, with small size, so you can call it a startup um, in, in that sense. But um, I was always more the consultant in the sense that I would look at something, uh, usually a business that kind of works, right? So, I mean, it has to work somehow. Otherwise, usually they couldn't pay our fees, um, but it could do better. Right. And so I was always very good at like looking at a business and say, okay, look, if they change these few things, it will it will go a lot better. So I, I think I'm I'm a bit more of a problem solver. Like if you mm -hmm. if you simplify personality types, um, and not a typical entrepreneur, because I always found the risk of you know building something, investing, putting it all in in one basket, it, actually a bit scary. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on what your alternative is. And when you when you, your alternative is that you have a job at one of the big management consultancies and make good money there, mm -hmm. why would you go and take that risk on, unless you really really want to? Right. Um, but in my case, with with the small world, it was it was uh, as I said ten years into Bain, uh, when the opportunity came up, and and first I I, I turned it down as for, for the reasons I just mentioned. I actually close to partner, so I really want to do this. I have invested so much time here, and then um, I thought about it again, and I thought, okay, small world. I know the company as a customer, like I, I knew it from from back in the day. I really liked that. I felt they they didn't they didn't do such a good job with it at the time like it was sort of I felt like it was a bit in steady decline mm -hmm. and I think that was where my problem solving <laughs> problem solver side came in again and I felt like okay I can do something with this and yeah. do this better and so I kind of then with that mindset became an entrepreneur if you want to call it that if you define it as taking over a smaller company and wanting to grow with and make it successful that's very interesting, right? You saw the issues or the, the problems yourself as a user and thought, well, we or I can do better than this. Yeah. And, and it's it's also, you know, when you're management consulting for 10 years, it's that you've probably heard that from other people. It's you're always a bit on the sidelines. I mean, yes, you team with your clients and yes, you, you want them to succeed. But ultimately, you're not calling the shots. There, there, there are meetings where you're not even invited to because it's company only. So you're always a bit, you like the you like the coach on the football field, like shouting in from the side. Obviously, it's an important role, sure. but you never score the goals or like, yeah. you know, make that crucial pass. And I felt that was something that was missing um, in, my, in my career so far. And um, I also felt that I wouldn't do it with a company that I, where I felt the product is not something I can relate to. Mm -hmm. So maybe if somebody would have come to me and it would have been, um, you know, a, a manufacturer of fine tools or something like that, per right. se, okay, I couldn't really like get myself to do that. But with Small World, I felt, look, it's also an industry that I that I like. It's social media, it's it's travel. And and I felt, yeah, it's a pl it, it's, it's probably one of those opportunities that doesn't come too often. Mm -hmm. And I have to take it. Otherwise, I would always say, well, what if, right? Sort right. of, and you don't want to live with the what ifs. It's, it's, they're, they're annoying and they, they're not going to go away. And, uh, but I, I, I in, in that sense, I also hedged myself that I say, look, I, can I come back if, if this doesn't work out or if I feel like coming back? And, and I had a, an open door to come back. I've been, Great. by now I've been probably be gone a bit too long, but, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so yeah. it's, that's how I played it. And I, but I, I still enjoy what I'm doing there. And I also want to talk a bit about the history of a small world because a small world was created in 2004. Then in 2013, it was actually acquired by Patrick Liotta Vogt. So, and you then joined in 2016. So can you take us a bit back to the early days? What was a small world doing back then? And how did the ownership change and structure change over that time? Yeah, um, it was, it's interesting. You have to think back to 2004, as you said, which is hard to do these days because the world looked very different. But I mean, think of um, a dial-up modem at home that makes a noise before you have an internet connection. Yeah. And, and you remember that, yes. right? So it was those days where the internet was new and um, also social media was new. It was MySpace was around, right? It was sort of uh, one of the, one of the big ones at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, so social media was something new to connect with others, like over the internet, exchange messages, being a chat board and all that. And that's what a small world did back then. I mean, it was um, founded by uh, a Swedish couple, uh, came from a wealthy family and they had some interesting friends and they, they basically created it as a, as a hobby um, and by invitation only. So they basically had their friends on it. 
And uh, then everybody was curious, what is this? And like, can I join it? And then they invited more and more people. And um, then the word spread and like, oh, this is cool. And, and, and also it was a bit like a fancy nightclub. It had like the, the right people in it. Yeah. And then it, it took on a life of its own and it became very, very popular and, and grew and grew. Um, and then, yes, there were actually two ownership changes over the years. And I think they haven't necessarily been successful at um, uh, transferring or, or it, it suffered one of those startup issues where it's a great product, but it couldn't really monetize itself. Mm -hmm. And they, they tried it with um, uh, advertising, but they were too small. Then also the other thing that happened is Facebook like came up at right. that time and basically took the social media space by storm because mm -hmm. it was just better and, and more prominent and all that. And that all then pushed sort of the popularity of um, of a small world down a little bit. And also the fact that then, you know, the owners at that time weren't entirely sure what to do with it. Yeah. So they didn't invest, right? That's what you do if you're not sure what to do. You don't sure. put more money in it. And um, the platform suffered, right? And, and by the time I actually joined, we had one of my first decisions was to uh, like rebuild the apps and, and, and improve the tech and so on. And uh, I, I think I was telling you jokingly, like uh, at some point I still have from my first few months items on my to-do list for the for the for the tech changes it's just like it's a never-ending story right? right and what you want to make better and so on but but um yeah that's the that's the story of uh, um, a small world and how we how we got to when i started and what role i mean many people know him or have read about him patrick Lyotard Vogt. What was his role back then? I mean, he basically also helped to to purchase the company, right? Yeah, no, he he actually bought it. Um, so he, uh, Patrick is a great guy. Um, he's a he's a, he's a, he's a true entrepreneur, I have to say. So not not like me, who was, was just like maneuvered himself into this uh, this situation. But he he's an entrepreneur. He sees opportunities. He goes after them. And he saw that one with with a small world. I think it's also was driven by his own. Um, by his own uh, love for 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 the network, mm -hmm. but then also he had um, he did Usgang.ca, you know, the yeah. one of the internet platforms for with, like for for the nightlife in Switzerland, and um, he was very successful with that and sold it. And I think he he thought that he could take this over, make a few changes, and then sell it again. I think that mm -hmm. was the original plan, and then. Um, yeah, that sort of didn't materialize right away. And then I think he was in that position of like, what are we going to do with this with this now? Sure. And out of um, out of this sort of discussion and that spirit, he then felt like, okay, we have to like then build something for the longer term yeah. and do something with it. And and the conversation with me started. Great. And you know, if you look at the market, the travel market is quite saturated, right? Yeah. So what does a small world do differently to really differentiate and? sort of bring and build a completely new experience that we haven't seen before. Right. So how do you survive in that saturated market? Yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're a bit of um, a, a strange combination because we, we don't have one product, right? It's not even go out there and I sell computers or I sell, right. you, you know, um, chairs or whatever. So we, we're, we're a social network um, in, in, uh, in our core. And so we connect people, mm -hmm. but obviously there are other social networks. And the question is, like, what's, what's your differ uh, differentiator? And so um, our differentiator is we have a focus on travel and we have a focus on internationally oriented people. So we want to connect sort of the people that move from one place to another. By the way, that's where the name A Small World comes from. It's sort of, oh, you're here in Saint-Tropez as well. Oh, it's a small world, right? So that's sort of right. the, the expression there. And so we, we really want to connect people that sort of are mobile like globally and like mm -hmm. go to like the same hotspots and so on and and um travel is a focus and because of that um and because of the ongoing question of how do you monetize a network like this i mean we were paid for a social network but i think um longer term we would also like to experiment with uh, free membership again mm -hmm. well you can only do that if you obviously can pay for your business and, and and pay your cost and and we will not be able to monetize our network in the way facebook does with with ads because we just don't have the volume so you also don't want to have that volume right no we don't because we well, we, well it's, it's a good point because we we are a curated network which which um is in our definition of that and how we use it is we don't let everyone in right away. So we want to make sure we have uh, cool people there. We definitely don't want spammers or, or anything like that. We want to have a, uh, a conversation that is clean in the sense that there is no 
words that sort of offend people, you know, like I'm not going to quote anything like that, but we kick people out that don't don't, don't live by the rules. So in that sense, we really want to be a a bit of a safe space in in in, in the uh, internet space, and obviously, that comes a bit at the cost of growing quickly because you limit your market a little bit. So then you have to monetize your business in other ways, and and our strategy that we're still in the process of of of, um, of executing on is um, to monetize our member base with travel services as well, and so. That's why two years ago we started um, our uh, online hotel uh, booking engine, the Small mm-hmm. World Collection. It was just at the beginning of Corona, so it was probably the worst <laughs> worst point in time to do something like that. Yep. But you know, there's a lead time to do stuff like that, and you have to get it ready and out. But um, sure. it's been it's been growing steadily now since then, which is nice. So people people at know know it by now, mm-hmm. and and so our our thinking is this from a business point of view. We have we have a really cool audience with our platform, uh, internationally oriented, travels a lot, have a bit more disposable income. Let's give them things to buy that are connected to what we stand for, which is travel and and events and experiences and mm-hmm. international um, this international orientation. So that it doesn't feel like, oh, why does do they want to settle me going back to chairs, right? Which has no, nothing to do with us. Sure. But it's something that they have an interest in anyways, and mm. they need to book travel somewhere. So like, okay, let's do it with the um, a smaller collection, which is um, like online self-service, something like a booking.com or an Expedia, um, just focused on luxury hotels. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is a small world private, which is the traditional travel agency business where you come and tell us, hey, I would like to go to Africa and do safari with my family, my Budget is forty thousand. Like, can you give me an itinerary? And and so we do that. We do that. And so, um, in that sense, we're, we're, the business model is directionally set, mm-hmm. but we're still building it. And in that sense, I would say, going tying the, the tying the the loop or the knot back to what we said earlier, it's still very entrepreneurial in that sense. That's, that's very interesting because you have the user base, right? So there, there are sort of membership fees coming in. But now, basically, with that user base that you've built over the years, you also want to increase the hospitality revenue that you can actually sell on top, basically, on that user base. Yeah, or to a point also replace itself. So, mm-hmm. um, or so it become a substitute. Because what I've seen is, so our membership fee is 100 Swiss francs per year. It's not, it's not a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but the willingness to pay for something like an online club or social media is, is very low. Right. And um, I see it with my friends and I say, oh, oh yes, I, I, I didn't pay the, the membership fee. It's not that I can't pay. I mean, they earn six-digit salaries and, and sort of, uh, and, and so it's a hundred bucks is, is not much for them. But it's just a bit like, oh, why should I pay for it? Or also some people have the sense of entitlement that they should be free in right. it. Yeah. And, and um, so it's a bit of an uphill battle with that. Mm-hmm. And so we will probably at some point change the model a bit that we will have a free level and we have a paid for with additional service. So like the classical freemium freemium model. Um, but you can obviously only do that if you have services to to sell to your customers. And we didn't have the services when we started. So if we would have done something like that, you know, five years ago, we would have we would have bankrupted ourselves. Right. But now we're slowly getting there. And uh, also the, the latest... Um, acquisition or of global hotel alliance that that we sort of did last year is is part of that because um they will add more users to our user base and then we will yeah. automatically become bigger and more interesting to monetize through services and how do you plan to do that because then i guess the conversion rate right of your existing users to paying users in terms of additional services that they book and use that will be the the key point to focus on. What do you yeah. plan to have a good ratio there? To buy the services? Yeah, I really don't know. Is 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 the honest answer? I mean, I, we can go with the numbers that we have today, and and, right. and they're they're still low. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also an educational thing that you like need to teach people what you have. Um, it, I think it's also when you come in and you know it's there from the beginning, you're more likely to use it than if you were there and you didn't see that they have sure. that too. So it, it's it's hard to it's hard to sort of model that exactly or have come up with an exact number, but I guess you have to believe that it will work. Right. <laughs> and I think in its core, it will work. So whether then the number is I don't know like ten percent or fifteen percent doesn't matter in the end. Or I, I would I mean I would it wouldn't make sense to estimate that. Sure. 
Let's also talk about some challenges. You know, you're basically also a platform, your social network, because you have users, obviously, but you also have partners like hotels or other things that people can book or that get advertised on your platform. How do you acquire both of them, the users, but also your partners to have a good ratio and a good offering on the platform? Yeah, so users, um, users we primarily do through invitations from other users. It's, it's still our biggest source. Great. It's also it's also our preferred source because it comes free. <laughs> but it's the best one, right? Yeah, it's the best yeah. one to have. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, but which also sort of just tying back to what I said, sure. if you have a paid for model, you also have people dropping out again, right? So of that's course. the that's the unfortunate thing. But so that's why I was saying if we can keep people even on a lower level with basic service for free, it will continue to grow, right? That's Excellent. another reason why this model is so interesting. But going back to your question, how do we acquire? Um, we do some uh, Facebook and, and, and Instagram advertising, which is uh, obviously a bit um, <laughs> a bit funny, like to advertise a social yeah. network and another one. Um, we Google is, is a source, right? But then also we work with partners. I mean, we, we work with Miles and More. We work with, with, uh, with some of the hotel brands where we often then ask them, hey, don't you also want to offer your, your, your uh, customers a membership or do you want to send an email out? We've also done commission models with, um, with partners where we think they have a great audience mm -hmm. and we're happy to pay them for everyone that joins if they send out an email. Cool. So we do stuff like that. So you have to be a bit creative, right? I mean, we we kind of didn't do that much during the Corona times because it was just not not something that would sell. But we're, we're ramping this up again now. Yeah. Also, the, the the paid advertising and um, the hotels. Right? Was the other exactly question? Exactly. The partners. Well, it's, it's very different, right? So one is the customers, and the, the hotels are. I mean, they're basically inventory, right? For the for the yeah. collection for the or um, hotel booking engine. And uh, we work with a few individual hotels, but mainly actually we have um, a few partners. We are a virtuoso travel agency, which is the um, organization of, it's like an invitation only luxury travel agency um, sort of club, if mm -hmm. you want to call it that. And basically they have hotels and travel agencies and all the hotels automatically offer their hotels to the travel agencies. So through that, we don't have to have individual contracts with all these luxury hotels, oh, but we, we, we get them in automatically. Yeah. We are uh, similarly, we're um, Marriott, Stars and Luminous preferred travel agencies. So we have mm -hmm. access to the whole Marriott portfolio. We're also a Hyatt preferred travel agency. So we have access to all the Hyatt hotels. And uh, same for uh, Shangri-La. So that's that's basically our pool. And since we're only playing in the luxury space, mm -hmm. so that gives us the inventory that we want. I mean, we right now have 1,600 hotels. So so um, but but really sort of the, the luxury hotels, yeah. and and we we probably need to go to 1,800. But mm -hmm. but you don't have to get be much bigger than that. So we started with 500 in two years ago, and by now we're, we tripled it, which is nice. So now Great. we have the inventory that we want. Yeah, you again want to be curated, right? To have the right uh, offering for the right audience, basically. Yeah, I mean, you have to find your your position in the market. And, and, and if you just copy somebody else entirely, it's, yeah, you can probably still do business, but you have to stand for something to, to, to advertise it. And um, we, our, our slogan for the hotel part is hotels we love, so only mm -hmm. the, the best hotels and uh, with extraordinary benefits. So we offer our, our uh, customers additional benefits when they book with us. So they, they might get room upgrades. They, they get a consumption credit for their stay. They get an early check-in, late check-out. It's a bit like what you would get if you have an Amex Centurion, mm -hmm. but you just get that without having to pay the Amex fee. And <laughs> and so that's also, we, we also always have two rates. We have the lowest rate, which is the mm -hmm. lowest that you can get, and the small world sort of VIP rate. Right. And that's the one with the benefits. And 99% of, of users book that rate because that's really what is special about the small world collection. Nice. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the benefit, right? With all the access, but <laughs> yes. that makes a lot of sense because you need to have the incentives that they have it cheaper or with more benefits. Yeah, I mean, it's it's from a user's point of view, it's basically you get the same hotel mm -hmm. probably at the same price. Yeah. You don't get it cheaper. That's not right. how we work, but you get more for it. Yeah. And so that's, and and, and uh, many, many um, 
customers in in this segment that we operate they don't necessarily everybody wants a bargain but sure. they know that the luxury hotels usually don't compromise much on price yeah. but they're happy to get something on top right that's yeah. that's that's how it works then you have a good deal there yeah and and uh, the the return rate is actually really high so we see that users that book with us come back to book with us so it's 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 nice to see that yeah and there you really can build your differentiating product in that segment that yes, makes a lot and, of sense and, and so what is obviously also in the next question which is not the user benefit but but for us why, why do we have the I do have a travel platform because we already a travel community. Mm-hmm. People are travelers. And if we show them great hotels in their newsfeed, we, we show them, we send newsletters, of course, for the hotels. Right. They they kind of trust us already. And they say, well, I mean, yes, it's the same hotel. I can book it with Booking.com. We can book it with Expedia. But I say, well, why don't I book it with a small world? I get more for it. I, I, I like the guys. And yeah. so that's that's why we built it. And, and it seems to work so far. Sure. And in the travel segment, just to also show the business case there, then you also get reimbursed with a commission on these bookings. I yes. think that's quite an attractive case as well. Yeah, so it's a typical travel agency business where you get a you get a, a cut basically of yeah. the of the, the cost that the, the customer pays at the hotel yeah. or the price that the customer pays at the hotel. Perfect. Yeah. Now I also want to talk about the operational leave of Patrick Liotard-Fogt. You know, he's very well known in Switzerland. He was in the media, also always very closely connected and associated, of course, with the Small World brand. So then he basically decided to also leave his operational role, right? And I wonder, what did that do to the company? Was that a challenge for you to sort of see, hey, this is like our biggest brand ambassador. Now, leaving the operational role, was that a challenge for a small world as a company? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. He's... um. Patrick obviously was a great ambassador, sort of leading the uh, the chat set lifestyle that that sort of uh, small world stands for to a certain certain degree. Um, he was chairman uh, of the of the company. I mean, he was never in that sense that operational. So right. to, to use to, to, yeah. to because you used that word. So he was chairman. He was um, very closely involved in in the decision making of of mm-hmm. uh, especially the the bigger decisions. Um, look, his his role. He's he's. He's in, he's a deal maker personality, not necessarily a, a builder. He doesn't have the patience necessarily to build a company for 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 a longer period of time. It's not his his, his strength, but he's a he can see an opportunity, swoop in and like take it. Yeah. And um, I think he felt then when um, he when we worked together for a while, and we also um, had obviously other people in the in the equation that um, it's going well, it's steady. Mm-hmm. Um, he had other projects that he also wanted to focus on, and he said, "Well, why don't I step down from my role as um, as chairman?" And uh, he gave that role to uh, Michael Mons, um, who who uh, was part of the board before, and who then took over the chairman position, so that Patrick could focus on other things. I mean, he right. obviously he's still uh, a major investor in the company, and as such, we. We uh, we still exchange notes and, and talk a lot, and, and yeah. obviously um, we're, we're, he's, he's, he hasn't left entirely. Yeah. Um, also, obviously during the um, the difficult Corona times when things got a bit tough, he is a major investor. Um, gave us a bit more capital to like go through that uh, go mm-hmm. get through that period. So yes, he's close. He, he's not chairman anymore, but but he's still in the background. And um, so in that sense, I wouldn't say we lost him, right? And he, he uh, it just his role has changed. Right. Um, but um, he's very much a supporter still and interested that the company is doing well. Obviously, yeah, as a shareholder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Great. <laughs> now, I also want to talk about going public because yeah. you did exactly that with Small World. In 2018, you decided to do a direct listing at the Swiss Stock Exchange. So was going public always the goal for a small world? It it wasn't. Um, it, it's that's that's where Patrick actually still had uh, had a bit of um, an influence on, okay. on on the decision, and it um, it wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't because he wanted to like to to shell his shares uh, like like you read a few few times, and then mm-hmm. some people said it, it was really because we we were we needed to grow the company, and we we knew that, and um, so we wanted to acquire another company that would have given a scale in social networking would have done something similar and there were negotiations and in the end they basically went with another company which which was publicly listed 
And the reason was because the other company used some of their shares as a currency to buy uh, to buy uh, that company because the owners wanted something that they can sell again. They didn't want to be locked into another yeah. company. And so with us, it was, okay, well, if we take your shares and how much is it worth and when can we ever sell it? And it basically fell flat because it wasn't it wasn't tradable. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Patrick was a bit disappointed after that and said, okay, well, I mean, maybe we just also have to have a tradable share and get on the stock exchange. That's how his mind works sometimes. And um, then, I mean, at first it was sort of a joke and then it was sort of, then it was like, oh, let's look into this. What does it actually take to do this? Right. And then we had a project team and it was actually, well, it's actually doable. I mean, well, why, why don't we do this? Because it might also give us access to, to uh, uh, different capital um, mm -hmm. sources and, and we can grow that way. And then, yeah, it took steam and we, we, we worked with the stock exchange. And then I think it took nine months from, from sort of thinking about it until it actually happened. And, and, and so that, yeah, we were listed. And uh, the financial press in Switzerland thought the world would end if like a small <laughs> company like ours gets listed on the Swiss stock exchange. And luckily we're all still here. So that's, that's great. I, I love that on, on two levels. First of all, because it sort of demystifies the IPO process. It's not something that is unreachable or completely unrealistic. You then did that and said, well, this is actually doable. I think this is a very strong message to send to all entrepreneurs out there. And the other thing, it gave you more strategic options to play in acquisition games, etc. I think yeah. that's a really big I mean, asset. That's that's how we used it. I, I mean, the way I think about the, an IPO is, is it shouldn't be a goal in itself. It's sort of a milestone in the life of a company. And, mm -hmm. and you, you've got to think about whether you want to do it. And by the way, I am also having been through it and, and so now living uh, with the fact that we have a, a public company, um, I wouldn't say I'm going back, but I'm saying there are other things that that I think I didn't fully consider by the time we we, we decided to do it. Um, but what I'm saying is the world doesn't end when you're listed. It's not like it's not like <laughs> you're a, you're a runner and you reach the finish line and you're done, right? Yeah. It's it's just it's 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 a bit more like taking a hurdle in a race and then you keep running, yeah. and and it just becomes a different race. And in our case, um, because people often ask, would you do it again? Was it successful? Um, I mean, we we raised 12 million uh, Swiss francs afterwards from mm -hmm. from investors we wouldn't have had access to beforehand. Um, we acquired two companies since, which were uh, both included a share component into the into the purchase price. Perfect. And we we would not have been able to do that. Uh, would we not? But would we not have been public at mm -hmm. that time? So, in that sense, from a business point of view, I think we it was very we were very we achieved the goals that we wanted to achieve with the with the listing and and actually happy to stay public and yes there is a bit more admin there is a bit more uh, there's a bit more rules mm -hmm. but you know what the rules actually keep you on track and it, it's it's they, they just promote good management practices like the regular sure. reporting we actually report every 6 months but we now switch to a quarterly reporting cycle with our finance team so it it just it makes sure you, you you have a solid company and a steady company. And in that sense, I'm actually quite happy that we're, we're listed. You got to stay on top of your game. Yeah, and it kind of forces you to do that because if, you're, if, you, if you don't have to do it, it's it's one of those things that can easily get a bit neglected, right? When you're doing business, you focus on getting things yeah. done and, and sort of the, the formal aspects can get a bit neglected. Yeah. But if you're forced to do it, you just do it, right? Sure. And, and that's good. And um, you know what? It's actually really interesting. I have so many conversations with potential investors, current investors, and and it also, you get a lot of inputs and people then connect you with others. Mm -hmm. So your, your your network becomes bigger because you're, you're you're actively investable, which makes you a connection point sort of in the the financial community. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I'm I'm glad we're, we're we're public. Great, and you actually went public with a direct listing instead of a traditional IPO. Yeah. Can you quickly explain us what is the difference and why was the direct listing the better option for you? Yeah. So in an initial public offering, you're you're offering stock of the company to the public to to buy for the first time so mm -hmm. usually it means the owners are selling part of their yeah. part of their shares or you create new shares on on top often it's a combination and with a direct listing nobody sells basically it's the only thing you do is you make the, you make sure that the share also then has a ticker and you can see what the price is and, and people can trade in and the second you usually do, or the direct listing, um, and by the way, Spotify did it, or a few few other exactly. companies by now um, as well. I mean, not that we were the pioneers, but a few companies have taken 
uh, that road. It's it's just um, it gives you a share price. It makes it tradable, as we said. If you want a currency with another um, with another um, company to to buy them, mm-hmm. and also if you want to get access to more investors, and we haven't sold a single share of, of, of what we had during the IPO. We created new shares, so mm-hmm. but that was capital, the 12 million that I mentioned. Exactly. That was new capital that we have created in addition to what we had. So, but we never actually wanted to sell, and so um, yeah, this is this is the difference, and and uh, this yeah. was the it's the logic and how you would decide whether you want to do one or the other. Right. The process is pretty much the same. Otherwise, okay. Uh, if, if you if you, it's not easier with the exchange or anything like that. It's pretty much the same process. It's just the difference is you you're not offering it. Well, with one critical difference is um you don't have to have an investment bank. So that's I mean actually it's a big difference. You uh, save a lot of money here. (laughs) Yeah, because we did it basically with a a few lawyers and our our own team. Um, But if you want to offer shares, Mm -hmm. you have to have a book runner. You you have to sort of uh, get bank involved. It can get expensive very very quickly. Um, And um, yeah, if you want capital at the beginning, that's the way to do it. And but we just raised capital a few months later. Not through an IPO process, but through a regular um, um, increase. And now after you go public, right, your share price is publicly available. Your shares are publicly tradable, obviously. But therefore, you know, now uh, COVID hit, travel industry was heavily affected. And of course, your share price also gets under pressure. Is that something that then concerns you and puts more pressure on you from an operational standpoint? It, It depends. It sort of... If your company is funded, if you have the money for your operations, your your um, cash flow positive, mm-hmm. you're actually fine, right? Then your sh- your share price doesn't have an immediate impact, whether it goes up and down in a week or so. It, it's fine, right? Because you know you're going to run your business and you're going to be there. If you're not funded and you know you have to do a capital increase at some point, you, you have to like find investors. And your share price is going down. It can get tricky, right? Because yeah. it's usually seen as a sign of the health of the company, right. and and so you you get into a difficult situation where nobody wants to give you capital, and worst case, you go bankrupt as a mm-hmm. company. Um, we have achieved this point of becoming self-funded actually in March this year, so wow. just just a, a few months ago. The reason why it was this late is we still had an earnout payment for one of the acquisitions, which actually means we paid part of the purchase price with earnings over the years. Mm-hmm. And so that was a bit of a burden. Um, and especially during Corona, it was, as I said earlier, it, it got a bit tight. Uh, and um, so we had a, a few sleepless nights when we when we were seeing that this is going to go on for a moment. But we, we reached that point uh, of being self-funded in March. And now, to be honest, where the share price is 10% up, 10% down, doesn't, doesn't uh, impact us right now. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice if it's higher because, as sure. I said, you, you, get, you get comments from friends about the share price <laughs> and, and, and uh, you obviously get investors that, that uh, talk to you about it. Um, yeah. Also, I get like emails as one person that emails me and says we should communicate every single week like three times to make sure we push the price up. But um, I, I believe you, you have to run your business and the numbers will speak for themselves. And I mean, we have now achieved since in the year we listed, we had a, a an EBITDA of minus 2.4 million. So we were, we were burning cash. Mm-hmm. And last year we had a um, an EBITDA of plus 2.5 million. So we basically turned the business uh, around. And uh, now we're, we we feel quite okay with where we are. And the share price has become less of an issue for us on a daily basis. <laughs> That's the company perspective. How is that for you personally? Because I assume you also are, of course, a shareholder of the company. Yeah. And therefore, if the stock price goes down, that also has a significant impact on your personal finances. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm obviously uh, part of my compensation is tied to the to the share price, and 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 um, that's true. Um, I I've taken a, a long term perspective with uh, with the share price, and I mean I, you know, we talked about Bain early and, and, and me right. going back. So I, I I think by now I I, I know that I want to be here and I want to um, you know build the company further. And then if if the share price now you know next month is like like I said ten percent up or ten percent down doesn't mm-hmm. matter that much for me. I know long term if we build a business that's generating a cash flow 
the share price will go up. Yeah. And so I focus a lot more on the operational aspects of, of, of the company than, and I feel the share price will follow at some point. That doesn't mean we're not actively trying to um, promote it. I mean, we're attending investor conferences, we're doing investor calls. So we, we get the story out there to get people interested and then probably we could do more as well now, mm -hmm. especially coming out of Corona where it's interesting again to talk about it. Right. But um, I feel like that the first, the, the first and most important um, task for a manager or a CEO is to to get the business up, uh, get the business running, get the business growing and profitable, and the rest will follow, right? The, the yeah. share price. I mean, in our case, it went up. So it, it went up, it went down quite drastically, actually quite heavy swings. Mm -hmm. And it shows you how the market can be manipulated in both ways. It is manipulated up, it was manipulated down. Now, now I think we're somewhere somewhere uh, in, in a reasonable level it could be a bit better, I feel. Mm -hmm. But but um, the, the price the prices uh, and the market has sometimes its own dynamic. And, and But yeah. over time, it will reflect what the business is doing. Right. And, and that's what you have to believe in when you invest in a company. Yeah. And you focus on what you can influence, the operational excellence, building the business and right. building a successful business. Exactly. And like I said, so when we when we listed, um, we, we were uh, had a negative EBITDA and now we're positive and we have twice the size in terms of revenue. So, I mean, that's what we need to focus on, right? Exactly. And, and uh, it's actually, the funny thing is the share price was higher when the business was negative than it is now. So it tells you a little yeah. bit about the market, but but I think it will, will, will get there. <laughs> Great. So of course, you know, now after going public to promising acquisitions, post-COVID times, hopefully, yeah. what are your plans for the next few months? What do you want to tackle and focus on? Yeah, we have um, we have a few projects that we're working on. So, in essence, the, the core, the social network, still needs to be better. I mean, we have uh, we have posting functionality, right? But we don't have video yet. We need to bring it there. Mm -hmm. We talked about potentially having a level with a, a free level that, that we're adding, yeah. so just get 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 it more um, people into it, get more people interested. Mm -hmm. The the hotel booking part can be improved. I mean, so we're working on that, and then there's. Um, the latest um, move that we made is we bought a 10% stake in Global Hotel Alliance. Global Hotel Alliance is the biggest uh, in, uh, loyalty program of independent hotel brands. So you have uh, Kempinski in there, you have Minor Group, um, which is Anantara and like NH, mm -hmm. you have Nikki Beach, you have Corinthia, you have Pan Pacific. So you have about 40 brands that are in there. Yeah. And it's basically a competitor to like a Bonvoy program for Marriott that, that many people will know. So it's it's called GHA Discovery. And um, we bought 10% in them and they uh, bought 3% in a small world. So it's to to sort of show that we're working together as a strategic alliance. Right. And um, we will offer the small world membership to their best customers as a part of the status benefit. Mm -hmm. And with that, we will get a lot of more travelers into a small world. Actual travelers, yeah. Yeah, because you have to earn the status, right? So you have to have uh, stayed at the hotels, otherwise you wouldn't have that level. Mm -hmm. And so they will get, as part of their status benefits, the, the perk to be a free uh, small world member or complimentary, get a complimentary membership. And um, that should give us more users and hopefully um, they will use our services and, and that we that we offer them. Um, we... On the other hand, also extending our memberships where you get um, air miles with your memberships. I mean, we have the partnership with Miles and More, yeah. the, the miles program of uh, Lufthansa and Swiss and, and Austrian Airlines and so on. Um, we have, um, we, we're working on a potential partnership with uh, Emirates to have them as well. We have Etihad already, so they will be then the third partner yeah. so that we can next have more of these memberships where you get miles, mm -hmm. which has been very popular with travelers yeah. uh, to book flights with uh, with air miles. And um, also as part of the GHA uh, discussions, we are now the vehicle for uh, GHA to bring independent hotels into the alliance. So so far, the alliance only accept the chains. So you had to have a, a few hotels and not independent mm -hmm. hotels. And we are now going after independent hotels, which is actually very uh it goes very well with our travel agency setup because we know a lot of these hotels. We actually have personal contacts with many of them. So we're trying to uh, convince them that they should be part of Global Hotel Alliance and we would then be basically the, the contact and the manager of them. So that the Small World brand will be next to 
like the Kempinski and so on in, in the hotel portfolio, obviously a soft brand. We're not going to tell them to put a small world on their hotels, but we're basically the service partner for that. Mm -hmm. And that's another project that we're, that we're working on. But in the core, grow the, grow the membership base with great users, uh, beef up the services and, and then make sure you have this energetic sort of like <laughs> ecosystem that, that works together and, and, and generates sort of uh, shareholder value in the end. Fantastic. And Jan, to wrap up to today's episode, we also have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you a different options to choose from or a simple question you have to answer in one sentence. Are you ready? Go ahead. Let's go. What's your favorite travel destination? Saint-Tropez. How often do you travel for leisure? Uh, about uh, 15 times a year. Great. Famous tourist spots or hidden gems? I mean, the, the, the obvious ones are like, uh, you know, like an Eiffel Tower um, or, you know, these really old buildings like all over the world that, that you need to see, right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, these are the obvious ones and I feel like everybody has to see those monumental uh, buildings. And uh, Hidden Gems, oh, it's very personal. I, uh, I, I, nah, I, I don't want to give away my, my secrets here. <laughs> otherwise, you won't be in anymore. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, there's all these people when I can't enjoy it anymore. <laughs> Is it in Switzerland or not? No, it's broad. Okay. It's broad. What's one thing that you wish travelers would stop doing? Pollution. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's an issue. And um, also, it keeps, it, it, it keeps, I feel like with Instagram, we've also seen it. If you have an Instagram spot, and that's why I didn't, didn't mention my other secret spot before, yeah. you, you have one photo and then the whole world wants to be in that one spot. Right. And, and people just basically, unfortunately, they're still not not careful enough with mm -hmm. the environment and they just ruin the place. And, and that's yeah. something that I think travel has to be more mindful of. But it's hard, unless you block access, it, it comes down to the how yeah. the individuals behave and, and the individuals are what they are, right? You have some good ones, but you also have some idiots, unfortunately. That's, sure. that's the way it works. Yeah. What's one destination that you haven't been to, but absolutely want to see personally? Um, I think Antarctica is one thing that I that I really want to really want to see. I, but it's 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 a trip, right? And you have to make right. you have to make the commitment to it and and, and go and see it. Um, and then I hope one day I'll I'll, uh, I'll do that. Cool, that's still on the bucket list. Yeah, it is. Jan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure and a lot of fun talking to you. All the best, lots of success, and we're very excited to see what you're building with a small world. Thank you, Silvan. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.